we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, the executive director of the center and your host. And in a couple of days, we're going to mark the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And on that occasion, I thought it would be good to have as our guest Todd Benzman, who has been studying the security aspects, the national security aspects of immigration policy for some time, and wanted to talk to him a little bit about what we've learned about the importance of immigration control and the role immigration law plays in protecting the American nation and the American people. Uh, Todd, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mark. The first thing I wanted to ask, just kind of a little personally, where were you when 9-11 happened? I mean, this is kind of like our generation's version of where were you when JFK was shot. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. I was, I was a year and a half old or some two years old. So uh, that's, you know, it was, it's the kind of thing that my parents' generation remembered. But for us, really, 9-11 probably is that kind of experience. Where were you? What, what do you remember about that day? I was in Dallas, Texas working as a staff reporter for the Dallas Morning News. And my beat was FBI, Dallas FBI. Hmm. And I was housed in a small office in the federal building in downtown Dallas. And of course, I was just kind of getting ready for work that day at home when the planes hit. And of course, you know, I was watching television with everybody else. And, you know, my phone was blowing up and it was all about what is the FBI doing in Dallas? Well, it turned out quite a lot because the planes that were used were American Airlines planes and American Airlines had its headquarters in Dallas, Texas. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of people might not know this, but the epicenter of the investigation was in Dallas, one of the major epicenters, because... It was the American Airlines bureaucracy that had the plane manifests and were able to identify the hijackers right out of the Dallas FBI offices. And of course, I had sources and all my people at the FBI, you know, went into full crisis mode. And I remember going straight to the field office headquarters and waiting in the smoking area for the SAC to come down for his cigarettes, because I knew he would come (laughs) have a smoke. There's a no smoking building. So from that point on, just to kind of cut to the chase, Dallas was sort of emblematic of what was happening at field offices across the country, maybe a little bit more in Dallas because of American Airlines. But Then they went into, for the next months and even years, arrest mode and immigration enforcement mode because 
the immigration courts were in the same building where I was housed, and they were bringing all of their suspects into immigration court for deportation hearings. And a lot of these were secret hearings, and I'd go down there to, to attend, and they were closed for national security reasons. Hmm. And my newspaper and I mounted a, a big challenge. We were all offended by that, that they could close an American courtroom. And it just went like that. I spent a lot of time in immigration courts watching these hearings over suspected jihadists who were not being charged with terrorism, but with various kinds of immigration fraud. Basically kind of like going after Al Capone for his taxes. Exactly. exactly. Interesting. So is that how you got into the issue or sort of the nexus of immigration and national security? Or how did that come about? That's exactly how, because the country as a strategy pivoted to immigration enforcement as counterterrorism. They did it very obviously, and they were open about it, using INS, and in those days it was INS, right. to you know run down people who were here illegally or maybe might be here who were of subjects of interest of existing FBI investigations, and they would run them through immigration courts. So I probably spent more time in immigration court in the uh, year or two after 9-11 than in regular district court where, you know, they were actually might be prosecuting uh, suspected terrorists. It does suggest how widespread immigration lawbreaking was if enforcing immigration law could be used so widely as a counterterrorism tool. I mean, it's one thing to use it against one guy because he happens to have, you know, been a visa overstayer. But the fact that immigration law was used so comprehensively, was able to be used so widely as an anti-terrorism tool suggests how broadly this impunity and ignoring the law had become, that the opportunity, the ability was even there to do that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I th I'd say that maybe over the next year or so, the Department of Justice put together more kinds of initiatives. Most of these don't exist anymore because eventually they ran into civil rights and civil liberties objections and had to be abandoned. But really, I mean, they were remarkable in their scope. I, I can remember one in particular called NSEERS which was a kind of an onerous, even in, in retrospect, it seemed kind of an onerous on the immigrants and on the government agencies that were carrying it out to go out and register every single military-aged male from 26 Islamic countries, places that were identified because that's where Al-Qaeda had had a presence at one point, and to interview thousands and thousands of these people register them for kind of an entry exit program just dedicated to people from those 26 countries. And yeah, I remember clearly going into a huge auditorium filled with mostly Pakistanis. I guess we had a lot of Pakistanis who were having to register with FBI agents <laughs> who were manning tables that sort of thing was going on. And the interesting thing is NSEERS actually resulted in a significant departure 
from the U.S. significant number of Pakistani illegal aliens. In other words, there were enough Pakistani illegal aliens who kind of took the hint and left the country that it was noticeable. I mean, it was actually covered by the media. So NSEERS doesn't exist anymore, as far as I know. It did catch 11 terrorists, though. Yeah. What has been your experience and what have you learned, what have we learned in general as a country about the role of immigration law in promoting national security? Well, it's a lot easier to charge an immigration fraud case, a visa fraud case for suspected terrorists than it is to put on a full court counterterrorism trial, which has its own risks of, you know, revealing means and methods and sources. And I think the FBI and DOJ, if they had their preference, would go with an easier immigration fraud case with jail time and then a deportation and it's over, kind of hands washed. So we see like the Al Capone example that you mentioned earlier, that there are a great many terrorism cases that came out of counterterrorism investigations that never got charged as terrorism. And that still happens to this day Mm -hmm. for visa fraud, for The reason we know that they're terrorism cases is because you can read about the terrorism suspicions and activities in the court filings, that these guys are hardcore jihadists. And so I think there's still to this day a a great reliance in a a very close cooperative effort, you know, 20 years later between the FBI and ICE and CBP. They work very closely together. They're often ICE and CBP and HSI agents are always to be found on the FBI's joint terrorism task forces. They're just necessary because a lot of these suspects are are foreign nationals. They're non-immigrants and they're here on different kinds of visas. So it makes a lot of sense. I mean, kind of like the 9-11 hijackers themselves, obviously, all of them not only here on non-immigrant, which is to say visitor visas, but most of them, in one way or another, were not in compliance with the law. Several of them were out of status. But I remember there was an investigative piece that National Review ran because their reporter at the time actually got a hold of the visa applications, or maybe the I-94 forms that they fill out when they come in for 15 of the 19 hijackers. And by the time they got to the 15, the other four visa forms were actually destroyed by the State Department before National Review could get them. And they reproduced them, and they were laughable documents. In other words, they were asked, where are you going to stay, for instance? And they wrote, like, Hyatt Hotel, New York. There's like 14 Hyatt Hotels or something in New York. I mean, they were absurdly sketchy forms. And what that points to, I think, is the other role that immigration law plays in national security, which is not only to deal with terrorism suspects in the U.S., but also immigration law's role in keeping bad guys from getting here in the first place. And I wonder what your thoughts are on the protective role to prevent bad guys from getting here at all. What are your thoughts on that? And that relates to the border, which obviously you've written about and studied extensively. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, on 9-10, our adjudicators and foreign consulate 
offices and embassies and USCIS here were naive and innocent by comparison to how we are now. The 9-11 hijackers submitted 23 visa applications during the course of the plot, and 22 of them were approved. And then they used those visas to enter and exit the country repeatedly during the course of the plot. And you're right. I mean, they were clownish in the security vetting that went on in those days. And so obviously all of the agencies that were involved in or that might have a piece of that pie put together strategic plans and Congress mandated that these agencies in the creation of DHS and all the agencies under it improve on the vetting, especially of the kinds of visas that the hijackers used. Right. So they wanted to close those loopholes up. And to a large extent, they did. They were pretty successful. We don't really know how many, because you can't count something that doesn't go boom. But we obviously are still having a problem because people are still getting in on visas. There's human error. There's huge caseloads in some of these embassies. There are still resistance among the agencies to share data. Never really enough time for these adjudicators to fully vet and screen applicants, even in places like Saudi Arabia. Right. A few years ago, there was a guy named Al-Falaj from Saudi Arabia who put in for an F2, which is a spouse of a student visa. This is 10 years after 9-11. He put in for that visa and uh, received it and got into Oklahoma. Nobody checked his fingerprints. Hmm. You have to give your fingerprints now. And five, six years later, when he applied to a flight school in Oklahoma, very close to where the 9-11 hijackers trained for their hijackings, the TSA finally ran his fingerprints and found a match to Al-Qaeda's Al-Farouk camp. He was a camp veteran back during 2000 with the 9-11 hijackers. Wow, in Afghanistan? In Afghanistan. Wow. And he hid that from the visa and he lied about it during the interviews but was able to get into the country and stay for years. And all during those years, the FBI later found he was still committed to violent jihad. They found that he had been communicating with all kinds of jihadists on chat rooms, planning to go to Chechnya or Afghanistan to fight again. FBI didn't roll him up until February 2018, and they didn't charge him with terrorism. They charged him with visa fraud. And put him in prison for 12 years, by the way, in 2019. Hmm. This wasn't that long ago. So, you know, clearly we still have problems in the system. Right. So then why don't we talk a little bit about the border? You said that there had been real improvements, and there have, although still shortcomings in the visa process, in the issuing of visas and the vetting of applicants and in admission at airports, ports of entry. Has the border improved? significantly, at least from a national security perspective, since then? And what are kind of the holes still? You know, after 9-11, the border control-related agencies all got together. And immediately after 9-11, they just closed the borders. You know, I mean, right. they just saw that as it's such an obvious entry way that they just closed them. But for 
commercial purposes and commerce and the economy, they couldn't keep them closed for long. So they put together programs to ferret out. Remember, I mentioned the 26 countries that were identified for NSEERS and a bunch of other programs right after 9-11. Well, maybe they added about 10 and they have about 35 countries of interest. So if you're somebody from one of those countries and you come over the border, there was a protocol that's still in place, supposed to be in place, to interview those people at length, usually an FBI or ICE intelligence, might be DIA or somebody else, but somebody tries to interview people who are apprehended for those countries because they're coming in, you know, at square zero in terms of identity. We don't know who they are. Half the time they lose, I put that in air quotes, their identification. So, you know, like I often say, they just identify as Mickey Mouse and have a story. So there's a very difficult climb, a mountain that we have to climb to be able to figure out who these people really are. I have fairly low confidence in that system. I, I've seen it in action. When I worked with the Texas Department of Public Safety, it's very difficult to vet and determine where these people are even from. I've seen people come in claiming they're from India, but they're actually Pakistani. And I've seen people come in from Ethiopia claiming they're Somali and vice versa. And so it's very difficult to figure anything out about who these folks are. And so in other words, they've tossed their documents and then how do you figure out who they are, especially if there's no fingerprints of them, they're not in the system, Interpol doesn't know who they are. That's interesting. That's right. If somebody is, you know, Pakistani and he says he's from India, how do you flush that out? How do you find out that he's really Pakistani? You know, somebody on our side has to put a call into India oh, and ask for a check. Now, India, I think, is a, a they're allied enough to where we might be able to get a check. But if they are in Somalia, where there were never any records, right? that's very difficult. There's a case out of Tucson, Arizona, of a, an Al-Shabaab family very deeply involved in terrorist acts and material support. They came in as refugees, but they were claiming that they were Somali, but they were actually Ethiopian. Hmm. They made the claim that they were Somali because they knew that the Americans would not find any records in Somalia, but that they would find records in Ethiopia. Hmm. So they got away with it for years until the FBI just in the last couple of years rolled them up. They were here for many years in Tucson, and it just took an FBI investigation to figure that out. So, I mean, it's really dicey and sketchy, these folks coming to the border to this day. We do the best we can. I expect that Afghanis are Numbers will increase at the border. We'll start to see more and more of them. And Afghanis present the same kind of problem. You know, there's just not a whole lot of record keeping on them. I will mention this one case, though, 2018, an Afghan interpreter for the U.S. military crossed from Mexico into Texas in Brownsville. And luckily, there was a record on him. The record was a Department of Defense record where he got fired from Hmm. his Camp Leatherneck interpreter job because he was regarded as a security risk. He was working with Taliban intelligence, and half his family were Taliban. He was 
declared ineligible ever to get a special immigrant visa. Hmm. And so he just turned around and came over the border instead, and he had this big security record on file with the Americans with his fingerprints and everything else from their security vetting. So we do have some records at DOD on some of these Afghans. Interesting. That instance suggests both the utility and the limits of vetting. And this is an issue, obviously, for the Afghans whom we evacuated from Kabul. I mean, on the one hand, the Army or Marine Corps, whoever did it, was able to find out that this guy was a problem and they fired him as an interpreter. Nonetheless, earlier, they hadn't ferreted that out. In other words, he actually had worked as an interpreter for the military and whatever initial vetting they had done didn't work. So, I mean, it does underline both the utility of vetting. In other words, it sometimes can work, but also it's real limitations. And I think that's an important point to bring up when politicians are assuring us that they're vetting everybody that we evacuated from Afghanistan before they're allowed to move to the United States, that I think we should probably take those kind of assurances with a grain of salt. And there's no guarantee that Afghans who are vetted won't go sideways right? after they get here, because the guy who brought that one in over the border has been living in New Jersey on a special immigrant visa for years, since 2009. Interesting. And he was also an interpreter for the U.S. military for years, unblemished record. Basically became an alien smuggler in a sense once he got here? He is charged right now. There's an active court case in in the federal system. His name is Saifi. He went sideways and is smuggling Afghans in over the border, including this one who was a national security threat. Interesting. So what is left to do? In other words, what kinds of things policy changes do you think are necessary to tighten up immigration policy's role and effectiveness in protecting the United States? What's left to do? Well, you know that I'm a fan of Donald Trump's national security or vetting center, the National Vetting Center, the NVC that he established in 2018 by executive order, because what a vetting center like this envisions, its model is to be able to bring all of the different agencies that have a finger in this pie of needing to vet immigrant, non-immigrants and visitors and to just sort of do the security vetting. They have their own protocols, hmm. the State Department cadres in foreign consulates and embassies do one thing, USCIS does something else, and over there with refugees and with a change of status once they're in the U.S. And everybody needs to kind of be on the same page and to be able to share classified information. They need to know what we know. And that is not always possible because of case overload and human error. But what the National Vetting Center model is, is that your USCIS in a camp outside of Damascus or something, and you can send a name to the National Vetting Center and they will run that thing through all of the different kinds of classified databases that the United States has. So it's sort of a one-stop shop for vetting, basically. Exactly. And that still exists? That wasn't 
one of the things that Biden canceled when he took over? Right. I'm told that that is one of the few Trump ideas that the Biden administration has actually embraced because it's really just so obvious right. that it's needed. We are having vetting failures all the time. They're not very well tracked, but we see them. It's not just terrorism either. It is now in the realm of things like espionage, all these Chinese students and hmm. scholars who come in on J visas and F visas who turn out to be, you know, stealing all our best defense research from Harvard and Yale and Stanford and UCLA and everywhere else and giving it back to the Chinese. And all it would have taken in some of these cases is a Google search to find out that there's photos of them in full Chinese uniform, right? But nobody did it. We're not even talking about secret databases. I mean, it's... uh they're not even no. doing Google searches in some cases. Unbelievable. Right. There's a, a lot more that can be done with a lot of other threats. For example, it's not in the national interest to let Guatemalan war criminals come live here mm -hmm. and commit visa fraud or Ethiopians who were involved in the Red Terror back in the 70s. We've had some of them. And that's all a matter of vetting, too. And so I think that what needs to happen is the National Vetting Center idea is a good one. It's still in kind of a, a fetal state. It needs money and resources and time to develop out, not just with terrorism threats, but definitely terrorism threats, but also espionage and transnational crime threats, you know, MS-13 and extremely ultra-violent gangs that are involved in large-scale criminal enterprises mm -hmm. coming over the border and living in the United States on different kinds of asylum claims or visas, that sort of thing. There's a, there are a lot of threats that we still need to be able to vet out. Wait, so what is the vetting, this National Vetting Center doing then? In other words, does it need to be bigger or is it the case that only some people are run through this one-stop shop? How does that need to be grown out? What's its status now? At this point, the NVC is, has been dealing with applicants involved in the visa waiver programs. Right. It's kind of like a baby step. And in January, February, they're supposed to expand out to a really important one, which is the refugee vetting. So right now as we know you know refugees are the vetting resides with the US citizen and immigration services and to a certain extent the UNHCR a lot of these folks are in in camps we'll we'll see a lot of afghans start to come through this right and also the special immigrant visas for afghanis and so the refugee programs will then start to be run through the NVC starting early next year. I don't know if they're ready to quite do it for the Afghans, but they may be called into, you know, some kind of a rush program. And I think that's going to be a great help because too many refugees have turned out to be jihadists in hiding or with terrorist records or problems with their past and still interested in violence. If there's any record anywhere in our classified systems, we'd be able to easily find it and get it back to the adjudicators in a quick hurry. That's not to say that they're not already checking classified databases, 
but there are more of them. And this can be done by analysts in a more dedicated and concerted way where the analyst can flag a problem or an issue back to the adjudicator with questions that they should ask. Interesting. Okay. In face-to-face interviews. So it's like a huge value added process. Would the goal be that eventually there would be capacity for everybody who's vetted to be vetted through the National Vetting Center? In other words, for student visas and everything else too? Well, that's a longer term issue. And I'm told that they're having pushback. They're experiencing pushback from some of the intelligence agencies on the counterterrorism issue. You know, the Chinese spies, the Russian spies, all the spies that are coming in on these different visas. The FBI and the CIA have robust counterintelligence programs, and they don't want to share necessarily. So there's sort of fighting over that, whether the National Vetting Center could do that. Hmm. I'm a proponent that they do that. But ultimately, Congress needs to step up and the White House needs to keep going with funding and resources for the National Vetting Center as a, a just a really obvious touchstone for national security vetting to just improve things and get people on the same page. Right. The last thing I wanted to talk about maybe is more specifically at the border. I mean, obviously the border is disintegrating, started disintegrating once Biden took over. You've written about this some, you've visited different parts of the border, and it really is kind of spinning out of control. The administration seems to get that at least that's a political problem, if nothing else. But what are the national security implications, even though most of the people obviously are Central Americans or Mexicans who are coming over, and they'll have maybe criminal issues, there's stuff like that, and obviously the broader issue of sovereignty and control, but are there specific national security implications of the disintegration of our control over the border? Well, anytime you have a disruption of the norm at the border in those management systems that we have down there, Border Patrol, obviously on the ground, but also CBP inspectors on the bridges and ICE agents in the detention facilities and HSI in the interior doing investigations. Well, all of that stuff gets knocked off the rails when you have this kind of a volume pouring through. I read just the other day, for example, that they're calling on Border Patrol agents to volunteer for processing duty in Tajikistan, (laughs) as though they're not already completely busy with, you know, Walmart greeting of family units pouring over the border right now and having to deal with that. But ICE, HSI, all of their normal investigations are on hold. There's very little complex immigration fraud and alien smuggling investigations happening anymore because those investigators have been pulled into the line. So it's basically a Lucy and the Chocolate Factory kind of situation. They're just overwhelmed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so... When you have that, you have opportunity for the bad guys. They're going to see that they can come over and maybe not quite get the inspection that they would have gotten otherwise, or probably not even get caught half the time. There are ways now that you can get all the way to I-10 with a cartel smuggler and just never get caught. Tens of thousands a month are just getting through as gotaways. I don't know that the vetting interviews that are supposed to happen with 
special interest aliens from these Islamic countries, Muslim-majority countries, are happening anymore in the detention centers. If the detention centers start to be used again, filled up, they certainly will be disrupted from those interviews. The whole thing is just, it's a mess down there. I mean, honestly, I've seen it, and nothing is normal. And the bad guys all know that, including MS-13 and your rank-and-file terrible murdering gang members that are coming in. As well as Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the Taliban. That's right. Well, thank you, Todd. Sobering discussion on this 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. At my age, I'm surprised that uh, there are people who don't remember them, but it's been 20 years, and there's lots of young people, even some that we employ here or have as interns here at the center, who either weren't born at all or don't remember it because they were still infants, whereas I remember we were in our old office about a block and a half from here watching it on TV, and there were rumors that there was a car bomb at the State Department. Everybody was leaving. The roads were choked because everybody was leaving to try to get home, and if you lived through it, it was a sobering experience. And essentially, we did learn something from it. We have made some changes to immigration law, which was one of the significant weaknesses that made it possible. But there's still a lot to do, and I get the sense that the forgetting, as it were, isn't just because we have 18-year-old interns who weren't born then, but even institutionally, there's a certain amount of forgetting and backsliding as 9-11 recedes into the past the urgency of using immigration law as, among other things, a part of protecting the nation's security is also being forgotten. But part of your role here at the center is to make sure that's not forgotten, both to remind people of what's happened, but also what is yet to be done. Thank you, Todd. And presumably, and regrettably, this issue is not going away. And so we'll almost certainly have you on again in future episodes. Good talking to you. Thank you. And finally, I wanted to talk a little more about some issues related to the 9-11 anniversary coming up this week. Obviously, Todd and I talked about some of these issues, but I wanted to touch on a few of the specific things the government has done since 9-11, some of them positive, but with shortcomings. I think the maybe the best place to start is to acknowledge that 9-11 really was, at its base, a failure of immigration policy. One of the reports from the 9-11 Commission staff specifically highlights this. The first line of it is, quote, It is perhaps obvious to state that terrorists cannot plan and carry out attacks in the United States if they are unable to enter the country, unquote is perhaps obvious to say that. Unfortunately, it's a lesson too many people forget. In fact, the same report even says after 9-11, because this was written a couple of years after the attacks, the report said, quote, border security is still not considered a cornerstone of national security policy, unquote. We have learned some lessons since 9-11. There have been some positive changes in policy, but for the most part, kind of petered out and left half-baked. Just to touch on a few of them, I'm not going to go into a whole dissertation on this, but 
at the physical borders, we have done a better job over the past 20 years. We have more Border Patrol agents. Their capabilities have, in fact, increased. But the flip side is, under this administration in particular, illegal immigrants coming at the border are essentially waived into the United States. One of the other recommendations from the 9-11 Commission was specifically about identification documents, that eight of the 9-11 hijackers had Virginia driver's licenses that were obtained illegally because Virginia had apparently some of the laxest standards in the country for getting uh, driver's licenses. Over the past 20 years, lots of states have tightened up. Congress kind of pushing states in that direction passed some legislation called the Real ID Act. And that has introduced both some consistency and some better controls to driver's licenses, but it remains half done. The deadline for states sort of converting their licenses to real ID compliant licenses has been repeatedly delayed, and in fact was delayed again by this administration. Another recommendation, this was the 9-11 Commission, recommended an entry-exit tracking system. I mean, literally, there's recommendations. DHS, properly supported by Congress, should complete as quickly as possible a biometric entry-exit screening system. In other words, foreign visitors come, we track them on the way in, which we always did anyway, and actually we do do that better since 9-11, but the exit part means we track them on the way out. If you don't know who has left, you don't know who is still here, who has overstayed their visas. And five of the 9-11 hijackers were visa overstayers. The problem is that a part in the recommendation from the 9-11 Commission where they actually set off with commas as quickly as possible has basically been mocked. Congress has mandated the development of an electronic entry-exit tracking system, and the exit part here is the key, nine times over the past two decades, and it's still not finished. There's been some improvements. There's been some progress. DHS has done some pilot programs to see what good way there is to check people out. At land borders, it's actually more difficult than at airports. So there's a lot of challenges here, but repeated administrations have simply not taken it seriously. Janet Napolitano who was Obama's first DHS secretary, explicitly said she told Congress she did not consider this a priority and so didn't put any effort into it. Another thing that was highlighted, a lesson from 9-11 highlighted by the 9-11 Commission, was foreign students doing a better job of tracking what foreign students are studying and whether they're even showing up to class is essential. Just one example, Hani Hanjour, one of the 19 9-11 hijackers, got a student visa, came in on that student visa, and then just never showed up to class, never even went to the school that he was supposedly going into. He simply used the student visa as a way of getting into the country, and there was no follow-up. There actually is a system now called CVIS, Student and Exchange Visitor Information System. It's under ICE's purview, and yet as one of our fellows here David North, who has decades of experience in immigration, he refers to it as one of the sleepier parts 
of the immigration bureaucracy. It just doesn't take its function of holding foreign students to their commitments and making sure they're complying with the conditions of their admission. It doesn't take that seriously. E-Verify is another important element of a national security aspect of immigration, as well as obviously the labor protection part of it. It doesn't seem that any of the 9-11 hijackers were here long enough to have illegal jobs, but lots of other hijackers have. The first World Trade Center attackers, a number of them, worked illegally. And that ability to easily get illegal jobs to earn money is an important tool for terrorists because you could come with a whole bunch of cash and not have to work, but that itself raises issues. Whereas if you want to be here long enough to be able to organize and plot some kind of terrorist attack, it actually helps a lot if you can work. And making it harder for people who are not authorized to work is important, obviously, in the sense, like I said, of labor protection, but it has an important security aspect to it. And the last point I'd bring up that where we have seen positive developments or in this case, lack of developments since 9-11, but the threat still exists, is with regard to amnesty. Amnesty is, in fact, a tool that has benefited terrorists in the past. One of the most notable examples was Mahmoud Abu Halima, Mahmoud the Red, they called him. He was a redhead. He was an Egyptian illegal immigrant in New York who was a cabbie in New York, and he benefited from the 1986 amnesty. He lied about being a farm worker. The standards were so laughably lax that he actually got a green card as a farm worker, even though he doesn't appear to have ever even seen a farm. And that legal status enabled him to travel to Afghanistan and get his terrorist training to help carry out the first World Trade Center attack. Now, the glass half full part of that story is that since 9-11, we haven't had any amnesties. There were a number of them, not only the big 1986 amnesty, but there were a number of smaller amnesties during the 90s. I won't go into the details. Some of it is just alphabet soup, but there was NACARA, there was a 245I extension. So there were a number of amnesties. Since 9-11, there haven't been any. The glass half empty side of that is that Congress will be considering probably this month, maybe more realistically next month, the biggest amnesty in American history, perhaps up to 10 million illegal immigrants to give legal status to through this budget gimmick of a reconciliation bill. And, you know, it seems kind of outlandish and implausible that Congress would pass such a consequential measure with no debate, no discussion, no hearings, and in fact, hiding it in a budget bill is a kind of gimmick, but it's a real possibility. And, you know, we don't know now and won't know until things go south who benefits from this amnesty and how it helps them harm the national security of the United States. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I try to be optimistic a lot of times. And in fact, since 9-11, like I said, we have learned some lessons. There have been some security improvements in immigration, but nothing 
close to what is necessary. And in fact, a lot of the changes that were launched because of 9-11 and the 9-11 Commission reports recommendations have kind of run out of steam and remain half done. And so if there's any lesson to draw from this 20th anniversary of 9-11 is that we need to finish what we started in improving the security benefits that a properly run and sound and tightly managed immigration system can deliver to the United States. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. This is Mark Krikorian signing off for Parsing Immigration Policy. I hope you'll join us next week.